WKBECK Radio. That was Get Lost by Colin M. Plank. Up next is another episode of Soon to Be a Major Motion Podcast with your hosts, Billy and Cody Beck. You hate that so much. <laughs> I hate how good you are at it. I did radio. I know. I have a history. I was a DJ for a couple years. I just, the <laughs> amount of detail and thought and effort you put into that. I could probably still do the WXAC. I probably could. <laughs> it's been longer than I want to say. But yeah. And uh, yeah, we're here. This is a... Uh, Soon to be a major motion podcast. I am Billy Beck. I'm Cody Beck, sighing deeply. And we are uh, here to discuss another uh, book that was turned into a movie. But first, how have you been since we last talked? Well, uh, we had a couple visitors this week. Oh God, we have. Uh huh. Uh, my beloved nibbling came in to visit uh, last week. Uh, as he was editing the last podcast. Yeah, uh, she was here when that one went live. Um, yep. And we had a long adventure. Yep, hit all the fun touristy stuff. She was here for a big birthday. Uh, first trip on her own. So that was, that was fun. And then she left on Tuesday. Uh-huh. And who arrived? I, I spent... Thursday and Friday watching a couple of movies and then my dear sweet mother landed on Saturday my real mother yes. not my chosen mother <laughs> um, and then we did lesser LA haunts with her some used books yep uh, some nice restaurants yes um, what did we do oh the LA Zoo which was actually delightful and I had never been we're zoo people, and we had never been. Yeah, it's and it's right there. Yeah. It's right there, and that's not a bad zoo. Uh, there was also, you know, that thing that happened on Thursday. Or, oh my god. Uh, our anniversary. Our anniversary oh. was last week. Yeah, we've been married for seven years. Ew. Gross. Let's <laughs> not talk about that any further. Um... Speaking of mothers, our chosen mother. Yes. When she first started listening to this podcast, before she even knew we did Death on the Nile, said, hey, you guys should do Murder on the Orient Express. Yes. And you know what? Next week, Kenneth Branagh's adaptation of Halloween Party is coming out, Haunting in Venice. So, fuck it. Let's do Orient Express today. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much, Jane, for the suggestion. I had a blast. I don't know that uh, Billy can say the same. You know what? Um, we'll talk about it. Um, I'm not going to go on the same rants I went on during Death on the Nile. I am clutching my pearls. There are some things I said <laughs> that I may need to revise, shall we say. Uh, but before we get into it, did you know anything about Murder on the Orient Express before you started reading? Um, through the cultural zeitgeist, um, I knew it was a murder on a train. I knew that it had the solution that everyone knows it has. Um, but I didn't know anything about the... Uh, how you how it happened and I, did, I had never read it obviously right. um 
and I hadn't I didn't particularly care for Agatha Christie before uh, so beyond just the jokes in the zeitgeist I didn't really know anything about it what about you? honestly same probably less <laughs> excuse me <laughs> <laughs> Probably less than you, because uh, I didn't even know the finish. Um, there are some things, when my brief acting career was beginning, I did murder mystery shows with a small company in Pennsylvania. You did! Those were so fun! And we performed this murder mystery thing on a riverboat... And we did it at my church. You made me the murderer. And that time. <laughs> you were the murderer. That's right. Um, I didn't pick that. I think Debbie picked that. But um, there were definitely some elements of that show that were pulled from Christy in general. She invent. She didn't invent the genre, but she invented but, the genre. Yeah, and things like Clue, the movie. Yes. Like are definitely pulled from Agatha Christie. But I didn't really understand that. I knew who she was, and I knew this title. Yeah. This is her most famous. Exactly. Like, I knew it existed. I'd never sought it out. I, I didn't know the ending. I didn't... I don't think I knew what the ending was until you and I talked about it when the, uh, the 2017 Brana movie came out. I do have to say that uh, I need to revise what I said earlier. I knew the false ending. I didn't know the true ending from the cultural zeitgeist. Gotcha. Yeah. The cats are fighting over a cardboard box right now, and honestly, it is fucking adorable. It's... Luna, get out of her butthole. <laughs> yeah, you don't like how that smells, do you? Because she doesn't wipe her ass. <laughs> Tangent aside. <laughs> I don't think we have much more to say, because we don't have any history with this, so let's listen to a trailer. There is something about a tangle of strangers, pressed together for days with nothing in common but the need to go from one place to another and never see each other again. Ah! I see evil on this train. A passenger has died. So they got him after all. You assume he was killed? No, 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 not. Well, he was in perfectly good health. He, he had his enemies. Indeed, he was murdered. God, murder here. God rest his soul. Someone was rummaging around my cabin in the middle of the night. No one would listen to me. If there was a murder. What is going on? Then there was a murderer. The murderer is with us. And every one of you is a suspect. And who are you? My name is Hercule Poirot, and I am probably the greatest detective in the world. Believe, 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 
let's get into it. Cody, you read the book. I sure did. And I watched two film adaptations. Obviously, the Kenneth Branagh from 2017. Yes. And I also watched... Oh, God, what year was that? 2010? 2012, I thought you said. Was it 2012? I'm going to look it up real quick while I'm talking. If only Um, we hadn't returned it to the library. (laughs) I know, I just (laughs) dropped it off, too. There was a British TV adaptation of pretty much all of Poirot's stories, and it was just Agatha Christie's Poirot. Mm -hmm. And they did Murder on the Orient Express, like, season 12. It was, like, late in the run. And I want to say it was 2012. Um... While you're looking that up, just a little bit of interest, background interest on uh, this. I actually looked up chronologically um, where these fall in the Poirot storyline. It was 2010, I was right. Murder on the Orient Express kind of falls in the middle of the uh, canon. Um, Death on the Nile, I believe, um, is later. Like, chronologically. In chronologically in Poirot's life. Yeah. Uh, and the upcoming A Haunting in Venice Halloween party, which I will continue to say it that way. Oh, yeah. There's, is there any other way to say it? The apostrophe is there for a reason. <laughs> um, is that going to be a problem? The dog barking? Yes. Probably. Okay. Uh, Can't do anything about it. <laughs> we don't do this in a studio. <laughs> we don't sit in the closet. Do you know how many of these recordings have airplanes going overhead? There was already one. <laughs> So, um, that Haunting in Venice is actually the second to last before Poirot's death in storyline. Oh, thank God. Bran, I can't touch anymore. (laughs) But also, uh, Murder on the Orient Express is the most famous, and that's why he went with it. First, even though Death on the Nile... Oh, you know what? I apologize. Death on the Nile, I believe, precedes Murder on the Orient Express. No, but Book is in the movie, and... (laughs) You're going to kill me with that look. (laughs) I am so annoyed by that. It's, oh, don't get me started. I've got some things to say. So uh, that was just a little bit of, even though Death on the Nile precedes Murder on the Orient Express in the timeline, he did murder first because it is more famous story. Yes. And you know what? From a uh, studio perspective, because, you know, we love to side with the studios. Um, AMPTP. Can or, suck my fucking dick. Studio, um, or uh, fucking WGA Strong. Pay your writers. Yeah. And the actors, too. Fuck it. Um, but I do understand why the studios would greenlight just that movie. And then when it did well, then greenlight another one. So I guess Death on the Nile is also one of her most popular it's one of, ones. Yes. Um, I hate that he changed the title of Halloween Party. I get it, but also, come on, man. Dude, come on. But I digress. That's too many tangents. Let's bring it back to murder. Yes. So I know you wanted to briefly touch on the plot. Yes, because I did... I did see a little bit of the movies this time. We broke the sacred the sacred uh, oath. <laughs> you you saw them, but you weren't listening. I had headphones on. Correct. You just more I, more or less wandered into the room and looked at some frames. Yes, and 
from what I understand, from what I gathered in both of the adaptations, there's a big, long, drawn-out um, moral quandary that uh, Poirot experiences regarding who committed the murder in this and if he should tell the truth. Absolutely. So I'm just going to go right ahead and say that does not exist in the book. He just goes, yeah, I guess he deserved to die. And then whoop. the the solution is the last chapter. Okay. And he starts by gathering everybody. Spoilers, in. by the way. Yeah. He starts by gathering everyone into the um, dining car. And he gives the false explanation first. And it is actually the doctor, the medical doctor on board, um, who is like, no, that can't be right. You know there's holes in that theory. And Poirot is like, but wait, let me tell you the other explanation. And we'll see if you agree with me that that is what happened. And that's when he tells what really happened, which was the big collusion plot by everyone on board the train. So just to make sure that nothing crazy changed in the adaptations I saw. Yes. The murder is a former child killer who was masquerading as a businessman, gets yes. stabbed to death on a train erratically. Yes. The first conclusion that they come to is that an assassin who was hired to kill him sneaks onto the train in the dead of night, gets him, escapes out the window. But what we find out is the truth is that all 12 suspects on the train each had a stab because they were all related to the family of the dead child and they all wanted their revenge. Yes. Okay. Um, Ratchet slash Cassetti was a notorious mobster, mafioso, gangster, whatever you want to call him. Yes. Um, he was involved in a very high-profile kidnapping case. The MO of the gang was they would kidnap... A child, usually a rich family's child, which I feel like I would need to double check when the uh, Lindbergh baby happened. Because mm, this takes place in, what, 33? Uh, yes, I believe so. Uh, so the th that was basically their MO, was kidnap the baby, ask for increasingly bananas sums of money. Lindbergh baby was kidnapped in 1932. Yep, that explains it. Yep. Uh, and so what they would do is they would, as soon as they started sensing the gang, as soon as they started sensing that the police were onto them, they would kill whoever they were holding for ransom, but not tell the people until they got paid and then dump the body and abscond with the money. None of this backstory was in either adaptation. We got the, the kidnapping and murder, but nothing about the gang and that this was their MO. Okay. Yes. He was the head of this gang. Um, and he basically escaped on a technicality due to being rich, which, oh, what has changed in a hundred years in America? So he escapes, become, assumes this new identity, and basically everyone that was involved, everyone on this train was involved some way or another. The conductor um, was actually the, the father of... Um, the nursemaid that was suspected by the police and she was so uh, aggrieved by the loss of the child and the suspicion by the police that she committed suicide. Mm -hmm. um, various other members of the household staff, uh, family, friends, actually the grandmother um, of the baby as well as uh, mother of the woman who ended up dying because sadness or whatever. Because uh, that's how you that you just died of sadness if you were a woman in the 20s. But basically, everyone was 
involved in it and in on it. And uh, in the end, the grandmother, um, who this whole time has been going by the most annoying American accent, like the biggest American, like, caricature parody, uh, comes clean and she is actually the famous actress who was the grandmother of this baby. Um, And she says, pin it all on me. I can take all of it. I don't want anyone else to be stuck with it. And then uh, Monsieur Bouc and uh, the doctor are like, you know what? Actually, that that first explanation is definitely what happened. Okay. And the book literally ends... Uh, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Uh, can't get the page. Then, said Poirot, having placed my solution before you, I have the honor to retire from the case. Okay, so there's nothing about, like, Romanian police are gonna ruin these bitches' day if any of them go to jail. Yes, there is- Oh, that is That is implied, especially the Italian guy. Um, it is implied that even if they are innocent- they are all going to, like, their reputations are going to be dragged through the mud with little reputations they have in some cases. Uh, But yes, they are actually very concerned about the, um, in, at the time of publishing, it was the Yugoslavian police. That's right. Um, I don't remember, it was Yugoslavian in the TV version. I don't remember if he even said in the Brana. It's, it's even, it's something that's kind of hinted at excuse me, with uh, Book as well, because he owns the train. Yeah, he's like the manager of the train line. The manager of the train line. Which, and how he... does he end up on that boat in the Nile then? <laughs> also, isn't he like a teenager? Like, this movie, I swear to God, this movie makes Death on the Nile worse. <laughs> I swear to God. Because this movie was actually good. I liked it. There were some bits and bobs towards the end. Like, we're talking about how there's no, there's none of that morality with Poirot. Yeah. Both versions I watched had that. The TV one, which which felt like a precursor to the BBC Sherlock in a way. It was like these classic literary tales. They weren't modernized. Like, this wasn't like a modern Orient Express. It was more of a... It was still a, a period piece. Mm-hmm. But it felt like every mystery he was going through was more of his character development. Because they leaned into Poirot being Catholic... And at the end, when he walks by the police without giving anybody away, he's playing with his rosary. He's I doing saw the that, yeah. he's doing the thing. And then with Branna, his whole deal is like so. So his character arc for Poirot is about letting go of perfectionism. D- does he do the thing with two eggs in the book? No. Oh my God! He stole so much from that movie, that TV movie. <laughs> There was nothing about two eggs needing to be the same size. No. So there was a scene in the TV movie where he orders for breakfast two eggs cooked for exactly seven minutes, and they must be exactly the same size. And then when they're served, he checks them, and they're good, and then he eats them. The opening scene of the Brano one is him doing that same thing, but they're not exactly right. And he leans into the character being a perfectionist. And there's always a perfect result. And his character arc over the course of this uh, movie is that he accepts that even though he figured out the solution to the crime, it's not perfect. Because this guy kind of deserved to die. 
And, like, there's no black or white here. This is a shade of gray. And his character has to come to terms with that. Mm-hmm. Which, at the end of Death on a Nile, if you recall, he shaves his mustache. And you see the war scars. And he's coming to terms with his own imperfections. And as I realized that watching this, that that's where he goes with that arc, that's kind of brilliant. But he grows the mustache back for trailers in Haunting and Venice. He's got the mustache again. What happened to the character arc, Ken? He's got to throw it again. Where's the character arc? (laughs) So, first, this was something that I said to you when I saw the moral quandary bits. Yes. Which is, this man is a gang leader known for violently kidnapping and murdering children. Yeah. Who the fuck cares if he gets stabbed? Why does it matter who did it? Both of these movies have the cast of criminals. Killers? Yeah. The the good guys, the protagonists, are all trying to explain this to Poirot. And both of them have Poirot saying... No, but it's the law, black and white, justice. Like, there's a... Does a, the book open in... Was it Turkey? Yes. Okay. Uh, Syria, Turkey, somewhere. So, the... The 2010 opens in Turkey. I think. Yeah, it's... it's uh, Istanbul. Yes. Um, And Poirot witnesses uh, the doctor and Mary... What's her last name? Debenham. Debenham. Yes. Thank you. Uh, he witnesses them witness a woman who cheated on her husband get stoned. And he later calls back to that as, uh, like, he disagrees with that, but it's also she knew what she was getting into. Like, she knew the punishment for the crime she was committing and stuff. Did the husband get stoned? No. But, like, he came off as such a prick in that movie. So, that there's that. Second, that seems like the exact opposite of the of the theme that Christie is writing about Poirot in this book. Mm-hmm. Because first, Poirot straight up refuses a case, refuses the case from uh, Cassetti, Ratchet, because he doesn't oh, he like tries his to hire face. Him, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I'm wondering if that's going to be a theme in. Um, in all of Agatha Christie is going to be you in the the formula is you introduce all the possible characters you introduce Poirot doing something silly off of after his last case um the new person the person that gets murdered tries to hire him he rejects them for some silly reason they get murdered and then he solves their murder yes. like is that just the formula of every Agatha Christie the, well two for two <laughs> so he refuses so he meets everyone. He's observing everyone in the dining car. And uh, he sees Cassetti. And he straight up says he doesn't like... Rass- he doesn't like... I keep wanting to call him Rossetti and combine the two names. <laughs> he doesn't like his face. He thinks he's evil just by his face. Yeah, and he says something as much um, Which, in both movies. And I did not do my normal research that I do. I have not had the time. I apologize, audience, but this is what you're getting tonight. I know that's a, a trope, especially in a lot of um, literature and um, storytelling, is that good people look good and bad people look bad. Yeah. Their evil is present somehow. But, yeah, um, part of the reason why he doesn't take it in the Brana, the quote I wrote down was... Uh, 
what's his name? Ratchet. Yeah. Keeps referring to him as Hercules Poirot. <laughs> he's like, oh, I know you. You're Hercules Poirot. Hercule, I guess. <laughs> and, like, that's when he kind of turns. There's another one, and the other one, um, when he's trying to buy his, uh, his services, Ratchet puts a wad of cash down on the table. Mm-hmm. And Hercule's like, nah, I'm not going to do it. And then he doubles it. And Hercule turns and looks at him and goes, this is not a poker game. <laughs> he says that in the book. Okay, he, cool. He, and he doesn't say, like, this is not a poker game, but that same exchange takes place where um, Cassetti is like, I will pay you $10,000, uh, which I didn't look up what the exchange rate was, but I know that's a significant amount of money. And he thinks that Poirot is trying to get more money out of him. And Poirot is like, no, I don't need your money. I have what... I have enough to take care of my uh, necessities and the things that I want to do from stuff that I did when I was younger. Now, I only take cases that interest me. Do you want to know why I'm not taking your case? Because I don't like you. And he leaves. He turns down a cool quarter mil. Jesus. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Inflation's a bitch. So, that. um, But also, I was talking about the evil... um, and in the in the book, it's also like he never multiple characters say like when they find out who Ratchet is and they're pretending they don't know. Yeah. They're always like, "Yeah, I'm not sorry he died. I'm not going to pretend I am." Like half of them are like, "Oh, if I'd have known that was him, I would have shot him in the neck." Like they, yeah. they describe how brutally they would have murdered him had they known, which makes it hilarious in retrospect. Yeah. Um, so they all, everyone in this book agrees that this man needed to die, which is part of, did you catch the symbolism of there being 12 people, 12 people on an American jury? I wrote down the quote, and this was from the British version. When Poirot realizes the truth, he looks around and he says, 12 wounded, 12 wounds. And it's, I can't remember which character says it, he just, 12 members of a jury. Mm-hmm. And it's a great piece of dialogue. Like, I love the dialogue in that British TV one. Um, I don't like how dark the character of Paul Rowe was, but I actually took a couple lines. Um, when, uh, is it Cassetti? Yes. God, my notes. I, I need my notes. I don't have them. Uh, Cassetti, when he's trying to hire him, the first thing he says is, do you believe in God? I do. He's like an extra gun. <laughs> which I believe you told me that's Toby Jones. It is Toby Jones, which if you don't think you know who Toby Jones is, look up a picture of Toby Jones. You know who Toby Jones is. Um some other ones, uh, I can't remember who says this, but uh put a sewer rat in a suit and it's still a sewer rat just in a suit, <laughs> which is hysterical. I think that might have been his um accountant. Yeah, uh, uh McQueen. McQueen, thank you. Yes. Um also Oh, if I'd have known that was him, I'd have ripped the bastard's heart out. Pardon my French. To which Paul Rowe replied, yes, it is a French word. <laughs> oh my god. That was the British TV version. Fucking hysterical. That's so good. That's such a good line. Um, so, I mentioned that was Toby Jones. You want to know who else was in this? Yes. This uh, is the TV version. This is the TV one. Okay. Because I figure we're already on there. Davis Suchette played Hercule Poirot. He played it throughout that whole franchise. He, like, every time I Google when it's not Kenneth Branagh, it's that guy. Um, some other big names. Uh, Mary Debenin was played by Jessica Chastain. Hell yeah, it was. Um, was she 
uh, half paralyzed in the book. No. She was half paralyzed just in that version. And I don't know what it meant. Huh. I did not understand it, and I guess Brana didn't either, because he didn't steal that for his. Um, there was one other big name. Uh, Caroline slash uh, the actress. Abner? Adner? Arden. Arden. Yes. Uh, Barbara Hershey. She was also great. Um, but those are the big names in that version. That's that's impressive. Yes. The uh, I if you want to go ahead and go on to the casting of the um, the Brana the Brana. So uh, the one that I know is because I made a joke. Obviously Brana, <laughs> but um, the the one that I know is I made the joke about how if you want us to root for somebody, don't put the most obvious villain in the role, which is Johnny Depp as fucking <laughs> Ratchet. Oh yeah, he he died quick. <laughs> He died quick. Uh, Mary Debenon was uh, Daisy Ridley in this one. I feel like she's a little too young, but I feel like she did well. She did. She did very well. I loved her performance. It was. It was subtle, but it was good. I feel like this was her first post Star Wars. Wasn't uh, twenty seventeen. Yeah, it would. Nah, not her first, but it would have been her first like major picture. Yeah. Uh, Leslie Odom Jr. was uh, Doctor Arbuthnot. Oh, he was a doctor. Mm hmm. And they actually, I, I appreciated that casting. Because casting a black man to play a doctor in 1933 feels weird. Kenneth Branagh uh, really loves him in interracial romance. He sure does. But also, they, he wrote the dialogue around that very cleverly, I thought. Mm -hmm. In that um, Daisy's father... The dead child's father, who was in the army, was yes. in the army with him. Yes, he's a colonel in the book. And he he was a sniper in the war. Ah. Saved his life. And that's how he got into medical school, because they would only allow one black student a year. And he got given that spot because of his actions in the war. So I thought that was very cleverly written to cast a brilliant black actor in a role like this. You and he know, also killed the role. You know what other uh, movie has a non-white doctor that's one of my favorite movies in the whole world? We are not doing League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. No, that, there's not a non-white doctor. I don't there. know. I don't remember. The movie's shit. Atlantis. Oh, yes. He is He is native. Other highlights. Uh, Penelope Cruz. Any guesses on who she is? Uh, is she Countess Andranye? No, uh, she's Pilar Estravados. The Christian lady. The missionary. Oh! You put Penelope Cruz in that role? Yes. You gave her nothing to do, actually. No, I she it. had some great scenes. Uh, like, like I said, this movie was good. It's interesting because she is... I'm sorry, is she Mexican or is she Spanish? She is Spanish. Okay. Born in Madrid. That feels like a really interesting update of the the missionary being a Swedish lady. Yeah. Okay. Like he 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 very cleverly, and I will give him credit here, built a diverse cast and made it make sense. Yeah. Uh, Johnny Depp, as we discussed, was Edward Ratchet. Ooh. His uh, second in command, Hector McQueen, was Josh Gad. That's. I have some shit to say about him later. It makes my soul hurt, but I also get it. Caroline Hubbard 
Michelle Pfeiffer. Oh my goodness, that's perfect. It really was. She she loved it. Like also, you could tell she was having fun. Second appearance of Michelle Pfeiffer on the pod. Yes. Uh yes. Only third? second or third? She was supposed to be in whatever we did before Stardust. Mm-hmm. Uh Judy Dench. I assume she was Dame uh, <laughs> Dragman enough. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the Russian princess. Yes. And uh, her her servant was Olivia Coleman, Oscar winner. She had nothing to do. Um Gerard Hardman. I don't Oh, oh yes, it's the yes. German who's not really a German. The racist German guy who's like a Pinkerton. Oh, that's how they took okay. He's just a New York detective. He, he wasn't even in the TV version. Yeah, he's he's just a red herring, basically. Willem Dafoe. Ooh. <laughs> oh, he's he's fantastic. Oh, that's wonderful. Okay. Yes. Um, I don't think there was anybody else major that I wanted. No, that was that was those are the major performers. Pfeiffer as Arden is inspired. Oh, she was great. Because she's so annoying the whole movie. And I also, of course, or sorry, the whole book. And I also listened to the audiobook. When she had big chapters, when that character had big chapters, I literally started reading the physical book instead because I hated the way the narrator did her voice. It was so annoying. Oh. <laughs> so it would be like, ah, oh, it's a Hubbard chapter. Pause. Open the book. <laughs> so that's why you think she's so. Because I didn't think she was annoying. Oh, she's. I would. Annoying. I would have written her as extra, based on the movies. She is definitely over the top, and knowing yes. that's actually the reveal that got me in the end. Was that she was the actress? Yes, I just thought she was going to be somebody that worked in the house. I di- or like a neighbor or something. When it, they it, when you had the big reveal that she was the grandmother, I was like, okay, okay, Chrissy, you got me. Like I that also got me too. I didn't see it coming because uh, I watched the TV one. The first was Barbara Hershey. Yeah. And like, there's a scene where just quietly from behind you see her remove a wig, and take prosthetic teeth out. Ah. And then Poirot was like, even I didn't recognize you, and I don't miss a detail. Like, you've put on one final brilliant performance, and it was very well done. Um, oh, back to what we were... Before we started talking about the cast, I was talking about the, the evil and the exact opposite of the... How this became the exact opposite of what I think she meant. So, it's really interesting, because I think one of the morals, one of the one of the things that Agatha Christie wrote from was that the class system in America is fucked up, but the class system in England is fine. Because, mm. because in the book, there's a lot of, there's a lot of old timey racism. Like there's a lot of jokes about Germans and Swedes and, and Italians. Italians. Like Monsieur the Italians Book, get it in this. Monsieur Book is obsessed with the fact that Italians stab people with knives. And I'm like, bro, everyone stabs people with knives. What else are you going to stab them with? <laughs> so... And it's also like, oh, yes, Italians are passionate, and the psychology is that they would do this. And he's, like, fixated on the fact that it's the Italian that did it. It also seems like what she's saying about America is that because anyone can become rich and anyone can become respectable, 
um, that means that class doesn't mean anything in America, and that's why you have villains like Ratchet and Cassetti, as opposed huh. to you've got Arden, who is also American, but she didn't grow up there. She married into it and moved there, became famous there, but she was already part of the the wealthier class, the gentry. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why it's that's why it's okay. Uh, or that's why she doesn't fall in the same thing. It's it's like the sewer rat suit line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's interesting because a lot of the, like the the racism and classism was kind of moved away from in the movies, except for where it was plot relevant. Yeah. Um, specifically with the Italian being worried that he's gonna have it pinned on him because he's Italian. Yeah. Um, they did have one piece of commentary on America that. Replace that. Um, was the melting pot line in the book? Uh, where they talk about how it's wild that the train is like America because it's a okay, yeah. So yes. th- that I don't remember that line specifically in Brana's, but in the other one, uh, Book and I think it's the Doctor and Poirot are talking at dinner. Yes, and. I think the doctor says, where else in the world can you... Or no, Book says, where else in the world can you find such diversity as this? And, and Poirot is Poirot like, says, America. America. And that's where he... That's one of the clues he uses And eventually. that's where... He, yep, that's how he comes back to it. Okay, so that was in the book. Yes. So he... To the perfectionism thing. Poirot is perfect. And he knows he's perfect. And he knows he has the correct solution. And he's so arrogant about it. He's not arrogant about it in the book it's that kind of i would say it's not arrogance because it's backed up by his his self-confidence he's so self-assured that he knows he's like i know i'm right there's no like i'm not you can't even be mad at him because he knows he's right and he knows he's gonna figure it out um and he's he's kind of got that like charming little like you can't be mad at me just because i'm smarter than you thought i was he had a couple lines I took from uh, the Brana, uh-huh. a couple quotes. Uh, if it were easy, I would not be famous. <laughs> <laughs> the killer is mocking me. His first mistake. <laughs> Just some lovely little things. Oh, and when he's dealing with um, the American, your least favorite, you have a head full of steam and a mouth full of words. <laughs> I love how he very carefully just, like, steers her away from him. <laughs> um, and, and it's hilarious, because she's trying to get his attention, because she has more clues to draw him away from the truth, and he just refuses to listen to her because she's annoying. Um, the other thing is that with Poirot realizing the actual answer, he also, I think he sides with them, because he agrees that... This man escaped justice by virtue of being rich, which is actually really interesting when you um, when you compare it to Death on the Nile, which is that the first time in her life, Lynette is experiencing consequences and doesn't know how to deal with it because she's rich. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you compare the handling of the rich person in that with the rich person in this. Yeah. Um, so how, how does he avoid justice for the murder in the book? He, it's a technicality based on, I believe, he bribes the judge and the cops. Okay. Like, he he pays for really expensive lawyers. 
um, that are buddy-buddy with the people that are prosecuting him, and he also finds some sort of legal technicality to escape, and he straight-up flees the country as soon as it's over. Okay, because it's explicit in the TV version that he bribes, or his uh, gang, his mafia, bribes the uh, I think I think in the in the typical book fashion... It is very heavily implied, but it's not outright stated. Like, I think one of the characters says, even says, everyone assumed that he had bribed the judges. Because um, I think it also took place in New York, but the actual crime was in Chicago or vice versa. Like, it took place somewhere where the crime wasn't. I know the house was on Long Island. Okay. Next door to Gatsby. Just, just tragedy row. Do just not if, buy if a Tom house. Tom had looked to the left instead of the right. <laughs> Do not buy a house on tragedy row. <laughs> um, but Poirot also, I think, at the um, at the end of the book, he's like, "No, this dude definitely deserved to die," and I don't fault you for killing him. But also, like, you know, I know, right? And it's definitely that vibe of, like, justice has been served, and it really we don't really need to deal with... We don't really need to bring the authorities into this, because justice was served. Okay. So th that begs the question, then, because both films had a scene wherein one of the suspects on the train considers killing Poirot. That does not happen. Okay, another thing he stole from the TV, then. <laughs> I'm losing respect for you, Ken. I'm losing respect. So it was very elegantly done in the TV version. Um, the doctor, who was a crack shot, produced, when they realized he might still turn us in, he produces his pistol. And I don't think I got the... No, I didn't get the quote. Um, but Mary Debenham talks him down. The only one who has a gun in the book is Cassetti. And that's one of the things that Poirot uses to prove... I think, he, I think it is Cassetti's gun that he produces. I think he gets it at some point. Okay. What Brana does is a fucking shootout in the middle of the train because he doesn't know how to not throw an action scene where there doesn't need to be one. The whole point of Poirot... There's a, <laughs> there are two chapters in this book where the entire point is Poirot saying, let us sit down and think. And that's what they do. Him, Book, and uh, the doctor all sit in the car, and they just have a little think about it. But no, no, we got to have a shootout, and and that's another clue that helps him decide like the morality of it is that he knows the guy that's shooting at him is a sniper, but he still aims for the arm to injure, not to kill. So he realizes, oh, these guys aren't real killers; they were serving justice. I guess I'll let it slide. They're serving justice by stabbing. Like, at least in the points. one, he doesn't shoot. He just he produces the gun and goes, this is an option. This is a way out for all of us. And they all like basically decide, no, that just makes us like Cassetti. We did our deed. We must suffer the, the punishment for our deed. Is it made clear in the book, or I'm sorry, in the movie, that um, they intended it to look like an assassin got on the train and left the train? Like that was their intention, except because of the snow they got stuck? Yes. Okay. Yeah, that was that was the original intent. And they had to improvise from okay. there. Okay. Yes. And he figures out immediately that no one left the train because there's no footprints in the snow. Exactly. Yeah. Like, immediately. Another question. 
does, uh, I wrote, Catwoman get stabbed? <laughs> Did she get stabbed at any point? No! Okay, so in Brana, only in Brana. Of course. He's, he's about to figure something out, and then Pfeiffer in the other room screams, and she's got a knife in her back. Because the killer is still on the train. Is there something about her Which having... that doesn't even that doesn't even make fucking sense. Because their whole idea is the killer's not on the train anymore. That's how they all get free, is that the killer's not on the train. But if the killer's still on the train at that point, then one of them is the killer. Oh, that pisses me off. He does they do discover that the knife is in her sponge bag? I don't know what that is, and I didn't look it up. It's a bag full of sponges. It's not that hard. <laughs> I assume I assumed it was for like the sponge bath that you take on the train. Yeah. Um, or so, like a, like a toiletry bag or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so her, the knife is discovered in her bag. So I wonder if he just embellished that section of it because had they discovered the murder weapon previously? I don't think so. Okay. And they, they later use that as a clue because it's the doctor that stabs her, but he knows how to do it to not actually wound her. But like, That's not how that works, Bro, you still don't want to put a foreign body in your skin, you know? Did they, um, is it specified by the doctor, or actually is the, is the doctor, um, is he the one that examines the body or do they have a third party come in to examine the body? In addition to Book and Poirot. It's Book, Poirot, and the Doctor. The and Arbuthnot? Th- yeah. And I think there's another Doctor in the British TV one that's not Arbuthnot. Yeah, because Arbuthnot is a colonel. Yeah. He's a colonel in the British one, but he's the Doctor. There, There's so many characters, Cody. There are and so many characters. There are at least 15 characters. All the archetypes are present. Yeah. They're just, they just names and titles swap around. It's fine. Something that I think is fascinating about the Hubbard character that is put on by Arden is that over and over again, she keeps talking about her daughter, her daughter, her daughter. As part of the character, mm-hmm. but also... Her daughter. She's doing it for her dead daughter, which is fascinating. It's yeah. like an interesting little... Yeah. I have other questions. Here's what I found. Okay, shush. Aha, it was you this time that it was, set off Siri. It was me. Um, How does the novel begin? Uh, So it begins on the train for not the Orient Express. It's the Taurus Express. Um, I believe in somewhere in the modern Middle East, uh, he is, Poirot is boarding the train, but it's told from the point of view of a French soldier, uh, who is guarding the platform, basically making sure that Poirot gets on the train. Okay. Um, and he tells a story about how weird stuff has been going on lately, about how a high-ranking official recently killed themselves and a bunch of other high-ranking officials resigned. I assume that is a follow-up to... This This is tying up the loose ends of a previous novel. Okay, so the the TV version opens with us seeing that suicide. So we see... That's a strong choice. It opens with this soldier's face. And, okay. And... Uh, Poirot is laying down the facts based on the evidence that ties this man to whatever crime it was. Okay. And instead of facing the consequences, he kills himself, right? Okay. So at least that's kind of the same ballpark. Brana opens his movie in Jerusalem. 
Of course. Where a priest, a rabbi, and an imam walk into a bar. No. He actually makes the joke that it's the beginning of a joke. But they're all accused of stealing a ruby. And it turns out it was the uh, head of police that stole a ruby. And as he's like, they're lined up against the wailing wall. And there's a crowd around them all ready to stone whoever it was that stole the ruby. And he like does things like set his cane in this certain uh, positions so that when he calls out who really did it, he clotheslines himself on the cane and he gets arrested. It's a completely different intro. I guess it sets up the character a little bit better if you don't already know who he is. But it's such a weird opening. That is like a weird opening. And it's like right after the egg thing. Ugh. Like the egg thing happens first. Ugh. Okay. Another question I had for you. Does he do the thing where he reburns a piece of paper to see what was written on it? Yes. Two questions. What does he put the paper in to burn it? And what is written on the paper? So, if I recall correctly, he doesn't burn it. He uses some sort of, like, chemical compound to not reconstitute but like cause the lettering to appear and i believe he holds it over a magnifying glass or some sort of like light source Mm -hmm. um and the letter says it's got three words on it and it says something about armstrong armstrong case let me... Okay, so it's it's different in all three, then. Okay. So in the in the TV, he, he asks... I think this is super clever. How he reads it, he asks for hat boxes from the women, and he takes the uh, dome-shaped wire mesh out, and he uses two of those to hold the paper in place, and then puts a tea light underneath, and that relights it on fire, and all he gets is AZ arms. Ugh. And he's not sure what that means yet. But it's another clue. And I thought that was really cool. With Branna, he just like lights it on fire with a lantern. Mm. And it's got like a whole thing of like, you've had this coming because of Daisy or something like that. It just like spells out the plot. There's like 20 yeah. words on it when he does it. Yeah, no, there's three words. Ah, um, it was a very tiny scrap. Only three words and part of another showed. Member little Daisy Armstrong. Okay. A small spirit stove and a pair of curling tongs. I use them for the mustaches, he said, referring Uh, to the tongs. Flattened out two humps of wire with great care wriggled the charred scrap of paper onto one of them. He clapped the other on top of it and then, holding both pieces together with the tongs, held the whole thing over the flame of the spirit lamp. Okay. Alright, so it's slightly different. Yes. I'm just... It was, it was just so jarringly different between the two movies that I was curious what was in the book. Because I preferred just a few words on there and no idea what it means until it comes into context. Because it makes Poirot look smarter. Yeah. Because he, he takes the phrase AZ Arms and who is it? I think Book is like, is that an arms dealer that you know of? Or are they behind this? And it's not until like another clue comes to light that he realizes, oh, it's short for Daisy Armstrong. That's who that is. But with Brana, it's just like, this is for Daisy Armstrong. We got you, bitch. Like, it's it's a whole fucking... There's no mystery to it. And it's a, it's a mystery movie. I want mystery. Although, I guess, technically, the mystery isn't the murder so much as who did it. Yeah, but, like, 
it's a clue. Make it a clue and not an answer. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's it's one of those things. Like you have more time. The British TV one was ninety minutes. I think eighty seven even. It was real short, succinct. Had to fit on a two hour block of TV. And they still managed to stretch some things out and stretch the story along. Whereas Branagh would just steamroll through some of that shit so we could fit a shootout in later in the movie. Or a scene where he tells them to kill him. Of course. Of he, course he had that scene. He has them all lined up outside of the train because they're outside of the train for half the movie for some reason. <laughs> and puts a gun down and says, if you guys want to be free, you'll have to kill me too. And Hubbard picks up the gun, gives a speech about it, and then goes to shoot herself, but it's not loaded. And that's how he decides to let them go free. Of course it does. Like, you don't need that. At all. I'm liking this movie less and less the more we talk about it. <laughs> it It's one of those things where it's really hard to do a good novel well when you're trying to make changes to it. It's... It's one of those things where he's a filmmaker that knows how to do some things spectacularly and also has no idea what he's doing sometimes. So I showed you this shot when we watched it. And there's a shot, I want to say it's at the end of Act 1, it's shortly after uh, Johnny Depp gets offed. Yes. Everyone's in the dining car. And the camera pans left to right, looking through panes of tapered glass at the suspects. And as it pans, because of the way that the glass is angled in some sections, faces disappear and reappear over each other. And it's this brilliant shot that really sets up the whodunit of the mystery movie. And not two scenes later, for some fucking reason, he had Josh Gad's character pace up and down the tiny corridor and like it's awkward because he's like bumping elbows with everybody. Just don't have him pace. Why is he pacing? Just have him stand still or pace away from like not pushing through the other two actors that are in the set. It looks awkward and fucking cumbersome. Are they just trying to, to demonstrate that he's American and doesn't know what to do? You cast Josh Gad. You don't need to demonstrate that. His <laughs> face says that. There's no reason. And then the fucking ending. The, as I like to call it, the Batman Begins ending. Oh, God. Okay. So, if you're not familiar, at the end of Batman Begins, uh, he gets summoned to the top of Gotham Police Station via the bat signal, and uh, Commissioner Gordon is like, oh, there's another murder in the string of murders, and he left a calling card, and it's a Joker card. And that's the end of the movie. It's setting up that the next one, we're bringing in the Joker, right? When you're a kid and you're watching a superhero movie, that's fucking awesome. It's the Joker! At the end of this movie, they get to where they're going. He leaves the train, and a member of the British consulate appears and says, Poirot, we have a case for you. And he says, oh, is it the Cooper case or whatever that he was originally traveling to London for? And the man says, no. There's been a murder we need you to solve. This one's on the Nile. He was on the fucking boat when the murder happened! Not on the fucking train! What the fuck? <laughs> so bad! <laughs> what was that? What was that? 
lovely tweet that I sent you that was just like, oh, Kenneth Branagh got one undeserved Oscar and went, I would like to do more, Agatha Christie, please. <laughs> oh, oh. Well, he didn't, he didn't win the Oscar for this. <laughs> no, he got it for Belfast, right? Yeah, I think it was for writing Belfast. Um, and it's it's such a shame because he had that miserable way to end the movie, but he had like some great like running bits. Like I I read you a few of his quotes where like he made his first mistake. You know, <laughs> that's a funny bit. There's a running gag where all he wants to do on this train, he doesn't want to get involved with any of this shit. All he wants to do is read his Dickens. He's got a copy of A Tale of Two Cities. <laughs> and they'll cut to him laying back in his car, reading it. <laughs> he's just chuckling. He, he's reading A Tale of Two Cities as if, as if it is a comedy. That's fucking hysterical. <laughs> and then he has that trash ending. I feel like the problem with Kenneth Branagh is that he wants to be taken seriously so he takes himself too seriously and it's not fun yeah like he's at his best with a sense of humor like his <clears throat> not to bring up the hate the the cursed movies but Gilderoy Lockhart incredible casting yeah because he's not directing himself even when he is directing himself he can be good Benedict and much ado about nothing he so he understands Shakespeare better than a lot of people do. A lot of his audience does. Yeah. And I do adore some of his Shakespeare adaptations. Wildly underrated his weirdly like 1930s musical adaptation of Love's Labor's Lost. I have is not kind seen of fun. that one. <laughs> it's kind of fun. It's got um not Reese Witherspoon. Uh Oh shit. Alicia Silverstone. Oh! And, uh... Oh, my God. Shaggy. Scream. Not Skeet Ulrich. <laughs> we had this conversation the other day! We just had this conversation the other day. Oh, my goodness. What is his name? Oh, the audience is... Matthew Lillard. Matthew Lillard, yes. <laughs> like, they're in it. And, of course, he casts himself as the lead because he always fucking has to. But it's, it's like, a fun little, like, Shakespeare... He doesn't change much of the dialogue, but he... Sets it in like a university in England, and it's it's a fun time. It's a fun adaptation, but then he takes himself fucking seriously with this shit, which this is supposed to be charming and tongue in cheek. Yeah, I feel like that's what's missing is that a, so much of Poirot is unfortunately him being smarter than everyone around him, and him just kind of like running circles around everyone. And you think somebody like Kenneth Branagh would think he's smarter than everyone around him and no, know how to play that. No, that's the problem, is that he thinks he's smarter than everyone. He isn't smarter yes, than everyone. Yes, exactly. That's the problem. Like, and we know he knows how to have a sense of humor about the character. Like, you sent me a TikTok the other day that was literally, <laughs> literally an ad for Haunting in Venice. <laughs> it was. And, uh... The beginning of it, he's like, ooh, my Chucky's. Like, he's so excited about his own Chucky stacks. And I want more of that Poirot. Like, that's why I, I think I preferred his adaptation over the uh, the TV one. Because he was more lighthearted for part of it. He was more arrogant and cocky through part of it. And he had some great bangers. Like, the he gets uh, roomed with McQueen on the train. Yes. Right? Yes. There's a bit of dialogue before them where, like... It's made clear that McQueen is disappointed that he has to share a room with Poirot. Uh, which we find out later is because he's 
gotta sneak out and facilitate the murder. Of course. But uh, Poirot's response to this is, I'm equally disappointed in you. This is nice. <laughs> it's fucking great. He's got some bangers in this, but he doesn't know how to close it out. He takes himself too seriously later, and he doesn't just let the let the brilliant story do the work for him. Oh, you know who I think would do a really good Agatha Christie? Uh, Ryan Johnson? Yes, but also... <laughs> it's called Knives Out. We've seen it. <laughs> Edgar Wright. Oh my god. Because he is so good at balancing comedy and the seriousness. You're like, right. I'm thinking specifically Hot Fuzz. Mm-hmm. Like, Hot Fuzz is a noir. It's just not quite as Agatha Christie. Yeah, but there's still that murder mystery to it. And it, it, similarly to this one, he comes up with a solution. He finds the solution and he has the clues. But really, it's just spite. Yes. <laughs> Spoilers for Hot Fuzz. Sorry. Um, but yeah, like, he... He refuses to let the story do the work, you know? Which the story... It feels like the he stories trust his audience. Exactly. The stories are good enough to do the heavy lifting. All he has to do is pick the right cast and write snappy dialogue. But he's gotta just twist the knife a little bit. Something that I almost... On the opposite end of the spectrum, I feel like Agatha Christie trusts her audience too much. <laughs> and I feel like this is also because there are major changes. She's British, and also there are major changes in the way that education has evolved. And also you're reading this 90 years later. The con like the world context is different. Yeah, but I'm just imagining like there are so many things where she will just drop like occasionally Poirot and other characters will just speak in French for a couple lines and it's like common phrases and stuff. Yeah. But it's stuff that we don't have, especially as Americans. Yeah. You may ha you may be more familiar with it in Britain, but at her time when she was educated, you took French. You knew how to speak French and probably Spanish. French was the world language. Yeah. In the uh, the turn of the century, from the 1800s to the 1900s, that's that was the world language. That's why if you watch the Olympic Games, every Olympics, every announcement is made in three languages: English, French, and the host language. FIFA. What FIFA stands for? I don't know the words because they're fucking French. <laughs> Like, a lot of world organizations, um, even in science, I remember learning, um, when you learn, uh, whatever the metric system is called, uh, the name for that system, like, the official name is in French. Oh. Yeah. It, it was the world language. And then, America, coupled with British colonialism. We pulled a Branna. We pulled we a Branna. We said we're the main character now, bitches. It's us. Um, anything else you wanted to bring up? Is there... Is there a Count and Countess Andrenye in the... Oh, yeah. We didn't talk about them at all. Yeah. Um, yes. In both. Uh, because I thought it was interesting that he discovers, or he realizes, that uh, Countess Andrenye, even though she has the most... She has the most motive, is not the one... Is the only... Excuse me. Is the only innocent one on the train. Quote-unquote innocent. Oh, she does, she's not involved at all? She is not involved. Because she is the... Um, she's the sister. Yes. Yes, that's right. So her husband takes her place and the conductor. I could have sworn in one of them she stabs in the movie, but I could be misremembering. 
In in the book, it is not her. She um, specifically does not. Portrayed by Lucy Boynton. I recognize that name, but I cannot put a face uh, to it. She was Mary Austin in Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, she was Proust Barbie in Barbie. <laughs> I'm not sure what you would know her from. Probably Bohemian Rhapsody. Sing Street, maybe? No. No, you haven't seen that? Neither have I. No. 2008 Sense and Sensibility. Margaret. Nope. Okay. That's the only other thing I could think of. And uh, Sergei Palunin was the count. That's all I got. <laughs> he was like, I think he's an actual dancer that they cast for that role. Ah. Um. He looks like a baby. He's your age. I'm sorry, did you say you had more? Nope, that was pretty much it. Okay. Because uh, one thing we did neglect, I mentioned I saw two adaptations. There was another adaptation. Unfortunately, the DVD got here today from the library. Although I think they just added it to Paramount Plus. <laughs> but my mom was in town all weekend. I did not have a chance to watch a two-hour, eight-minute movie. But they adapted this in 1974. You do love a 70s adaptation. I do love a 70s. Because they understand the lightheartedness of it. They get it. They were on enough coke to understand. Bingo. So, similarly to when we did The Time Machine, this coming Saturday, Cody and I are going to sit down, and we are going to live tweet Murder on the Orient Express from 1974. That'll be Saturday the 9th. Let me make sure I have nothing else going on that night. How many sports? Oh, they're all over by 7. Saturday the 9th, 7 Pacific. We're going to throw that on, and we're going to enjoy it. Let me give you some uh, cast highlights here. You have been waiting for this all week. I'm so excited for some of these. Albert Finney is Hercule Poirot. Okay. Harriet Hubbard, Lauren Bacall. Ooh. Uh -huh. Also, I'm sorry, they changed her first name like three times. She, uh, it's a <laughs> fake name anyway. Um, Greta Olsen is played by Ingrid Bergman. Okay. <laughs> And this is the big one. Colonel Arbuthnot? Sean Connery himself. No! <laughs> no! Does he hit a woman in it? Uh, he's gonna find a way. <laughs> um, oh, is Angela is Lansbury not? in this? I, uh, I don't think so, because she was in The Death on the Nile. She is not. Aww. Um, I will say... Is baby Dame Judy Dench? <laughs> I don't see her on here. Hector McQueen. Anthony Perkins. Oh. So yeah, we'll be watching that this coming Saturday as you're listening. What did I say it was? The 9th of September? Yes. The 9th of September. 7 p.m. And that'll warm us up for our next feature. That's right. We're doing it. Kenneth Branagh's mm, a Haunting in Venice. <laughs> We're having a Halloween party! A Halloween party? I need to look up now. To, Did anybody else adapt it? To break into spooky season, uh, we are we are going to be doing Halloween Party by Agatha Christie, a.k.a. A Haunting in Venice by Kenneth yes. Branagh. Um, it was also adapted from that same series. That the British series. 2010. Yeah, I don't know what year. Yeah, only that one adaptation, so. All right. Less homework for me. 
<laughs> well, I'll try to actually research next time. I won't have family in town. Although, when when does when should our pod be dropping, and when are we going to be seeing the movie? <laughs> uh, the pod's dropping two weeks from when this one drops, and I'll be I'll be seeing the movie uh, before then. Let's <laughs> 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 a fine time that weekend. Uh, so yeah, until then, uh, you can check out our link tree in the bio. Um, happy birthday, Mark, a little belated. Happy birthday. Um. We love you very much. But yeah, I got nothing else to say. Nope. We kept this one to a tight hour. Really? Yeah. Dang, we only ranted a little bit. Nah. Do you have anything to say, Marshmallow? <laughs> it is treats time. It sure is. Give the girls some treats. Okay. Outro time. Please.